last weekend, Fox News ran this headline. Our young religious stars like Justin Bieber and Tim Tebow, Tebow, good, Tebow, some of you go Tebow, I know you do, making Christianity cool. Now, last weekend, Justin Bieber made the headlines or made it in the news because of, of this. He put a really large size face tattoo on his leg of Jesus. And then dovetailing into that last weekend was the unlikely victory that Denver had over the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> Tibu, right? Tibu. <laughs> Led by the very charismatic quarterback, 24-year-old Tim Tebow, who very publicly and regularly gives praise to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for giving him the ability to do what he does. And then it just happened also on that weekend that Demi Lovato, who uh, is a 19-year-old former Disney star and a singer, went to Twitterland and, and hit the social network and began to tell her fans how her faith in God has put her back on the right track as she has had a stint in rehab. And so I'm just thinking today that Jesus' publicist must be very happy for all the publicity that he has received, and therefore the world will now believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of the world. Seriously, I, I am thankful for the journey they're walking, as all of us, and most of us, I should say, in this room, are on a journey with Jesus. But God's plan never depended on the culture calling following with Jesus cool and never really depended on its leaders being celebrities. In fact, most of the time, if you look through history, you'll find that the leaders of those who followed Jesus generally were thought to be uncool and even violently opposed. One of those is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle was so uncool that they tried to stone him to death. He was so uncool that frequently he could get no food and had very little clothing. He was so uncool that the majority of the time when he went into a town or a city and began to talk about following Jesus, he was beaten up and thrown out. He was so uncool that two or three times he found himself placed in prison. And it was in this place of prison that he writes to some friends in a place called Ephesus to remind them what this Jesus thing is all about. And it's something that I think Justin Bieber will discover as he matures in his journey. Because here's what he said. Justin Bieber said this, a lot of people who are religious, I think they get lost. They go to church just to go to church. I'm not trying to disrespect them, but for me, I focus more on praying and talking to him. Bieber says, I don't have to go to church. What he feels like was reflected in a friend of mine who's in his mid-20s. And he told me his history, told me about a destructive path that he found himself on. And he said, while I was on that destructive path, the church did not help me. If it wasn't for three or four friends who actually took him under their wing, who are followers of Jesus, he said, I would not be walking this path of now devoted to following Jesus. So, so here's the caution that I have. Justin Bieber may not go to church, but he needs to understand that he is the church. 
and, and my friend who, who feels like the church let him down needs to understand that those four guys who came around him are the church. And the church actually did what it was supposed to do in his life. And I think that's why Paul the Apostle writes these incredible and and important words that I want you to see to his friends in Ephesus. And this is what he says in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I want to propose to you this morning that the community of faith that we call the church is the only means by which Jesus said the world will get a revelation or revealing of who Jesus is. And I believe it is is heretical, it is heresy for, for us to say that I follow Jesus, but the church is optional. But I also think it's heretical, it is heresy, for those who say I belong to the church to believe that the lifestyle of the church is also optional. So we're going to spend these next four weeks taking a piece of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, the fourth chapter. When he wrote it, he didn't have chapters, but that's how we designate where we are. And so we're going to look at the fourth chapter. And we're going to discover, as we walk through this, how this community of faith, this church, is actually built And that's why you see the construction materials here. And as we go, we're actually going to build a structure here to to reveal to us how we build the church, or actually how he builds this incredible manifestation of himself to this world around us. So please understand, as we talk about the church today, we're talking about it actually being an incarnation of Jesus Christ himself. And as we do that, we're going to be incredibly honest with ourselves to see where we have fallen short and where we need to renovate where we have fallen short. And I think the best way to begin, as you see there's no structure yet, is you've got to begin with a foundation. A foundation has got to be strong because no matter what else a church does, if its foundation is not there, it cannot and will not reveal Jesus to the world around it. So we begin by understanding this, that the church's foundation begins with her calling. There is a very specific lifestyle that a community of faith is ordered to live. Not just expected to, but it must. And because it hasn't, I think, in these last generations, because it hasn't, the church is just seen as another organization. It is seen as as some kind of community service group. It is like the Lions Club or the Rotary Club or, or the Chamber of Commerce. It's just another group that does something really well. I was, I was standing by my bookshelf yesterday, and, and I saw this collection of books. All of these are right together, and, and the books are entitled The Younger Evangelicals, Soul Salsa, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, Jazz Notes, A New Kind of Christian, A Generous Orthodoxy, Unchristian, The Next... Christendom, and Velvet Elvis, and they all say the same thing, that the church is not revealing Jesus because the church doesn't understand what the church is supposed to be, and if we are to be what God designed for us to be, we need to make a radical change. When Jesus was talking to Peter, he said to him, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, there is this demonic power that is incredibly strong, but the way that I build my church, that force of evil cannot overcome it. So what Jesus is saying, because I've come to this earth and I've come to repossess what is mine, 
I've come to bring love and justice to a very destructive, evil world. I'm bringing love and justice to you. And the way that I will do this, that I will build it upon my own power. And what I will build, he said, will be called the ecclesia or the ecclesia, which we call the church, which simply means the called out ones. Now, you that are baby boomer age and maybe a little bit younger, remember going to playgrounds where there are no safety concerns. Remember? You'd climb up really high ladders or slides and fall off, and your mother would just rub your head and say, deal with it. Remember those? And you had that, that merry-go-round thing. You remember you'd, you'd it had little bars going down in the middle of it, and, and you'd all hang on, and somebody would run with it all the way around trying to either make you throw up or fall off or both. Remember those? And then there was this thing. It's called the teeter-totter. Remember the teeter-totter? We have, yeah, right there? There you go. And you remember when you get on the teeter-totter, if somebody heavier than you sat on the other end, what would happen? You couldn't get down. So that person would have to move up so that you would get balanced. And if you were really a nasty person, you would get down to the bottom. They'd be at the top. And you know what you'd do? Yeah, you did. You'd jump off. And then they would hurt their bum, and you'd say, oh, deal with it. Right, see, this, this phrase that, that Paul uses when he says, I want you to walk a path, live a life that is worthy of the calling. That word worthy means I want you to find a balance. It is the balancing of the scales. And so on this side of the scale, on this side, if you will, of the teeter-totter, is Jesus. He's the one who's calling. This is the one who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. We looked at this a few weeks ago in Philippians, the second chapter. He did not consider the manner of his life as important as your life. And so he gave up all of the benefits of living as God, and he came down to earth and he put on flesh so that he'd understand how we feel. And he walked with us and demonstrated who God is and how God loves us. He gave us grace, he gave us mercy, and then he took upon himself the sins, the offenses that we carry that we should have died for. And he took our death and he gave us his life, and then when he rose again, he said, now I'm going to give you the ability to live the life that I designed for you to live in the first place. You look at what he has done on this side of the scale, this side of the balance, and you say, how could I equal that? That is so, so heavy. What Paul is saying here is the way that I treat you and the way that I treat God should measure up to the value that I see in what Jesus has done for me. The way that I live my life will reflect the value I see in my relationship with Jesus. He said, I want you to live this way. And that is why the greatest proof of Jesus' present existence is not necessarily T-bowing on an NFL field or putting a big tattoo of Jesus on your calf. But it's simply this, and amazingly it's this. It's unity. It is the coming together of relationships in harmony. For we know that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of what? Right relationships. In my first assignment in my pastoral role, I was age 21. And I went to, a, Pam and I went to a, a church of about 300 
in California. My job was to oversee all the worship ministries of the church. And so when I got there, I discovered that they had a small choir and they had an orchestra that, if I remember correctly, consisted of two guitars, a flute, a clarinet, two accordions that halfway through the service would always go, and drums. Now, the orchestra, the way they had it situated when I got there was down here on the floor, and it wasn't as high a platform. It was just like one, two steps up. And the orchestra was there, and then the drummer sat right here. And I've told you this story before, but it is just so relevant. The, the drummer had painted, very nicely painted, on the, on the skin of the bass drum, he had painted a picture of Jesus holding a lamb. It was very nice. But when this 65-year-old drummer would, would step on the, the, the bass pedal, he had it rigged so that there would be a strobe light go off and a picture of Jesus' face would superimpose over that picture. So all through the service, we got this, this, this strobe thing going on. And he just thought it was great. Well, in about a month or two, I needed to re- rearrange the platform, and so I moved the orchestra, and I moved him down on the floor. Not a good thing. Because, you know, God put him there. So he left the church angry. And I said, why are you leaving? He said, because the people won't be able to see the face of Jesus anymore. And I want to contend that when he left the church angry is when people could not see the face of Jesus anymore. Isn't it interesting that the moments before Jesus is going to die... He prays for the church that will be birthed after his resurrection. And he doesn't pray for a nice building. He doesn't pray for good programs. He doesn't pray for great orators. He doesn't pray for beautiful music. He prays for one thing. And here's what he prays. John records it, John 17. He says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become what? Perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus' prayer for you and me was that we become perfectly one. That means, actually, the word perfectly means complete or accomplished, that we have this complete oneness because here's what he says. That unity is the way that the world around us will actually see that Jesus loves them. The way that we treat each other is how they will say, oh, that's how Jesus, that's how God loves me. So what does that unity look like? Paul specifies four graces that are really inherent within us as Jesus is in us that actually balance conduct or our calling, I should say, our calling and our character. And here's what he says, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the second verse. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. These are the pillars upon which unity exists. So what does it mean to be completely humble? Being completely humble is not what you may think. It is not a self-bashing. It is not a, a... a declaration that I'm just just not that good. In fact, if anything, we as followers of Jesus should understand that we are created in his image and he has gifted us with wonderful giftings to make an effect on the world and therefore we should be very confident in those 
and not diminish them in any way. We should be standing bold and strong. So this is not a, a bashing. The other day, Pam and I were at a consignment store just checking stuff out, and we found something we needed for the house. And, and, and the lady that waited on us, we've met her a couple of times. Don't know her real well, her and her husband. We've met them a couple of times. And so we're dealing with this thing. And, and while we're standing there, she looks at me, and she says, Oh, man, those are cool glasses, and I really like your goatee. This is not a goatee, but she called it. She said, You look really good. And I said, Well, lady, we're already going to bite. You don't have to say that. But I said, but you can continue. Just stand right here and just keep talking. So we left the place, and, and Pam said to me as we got in the car, she said, you liked that, didn't you? I said, yeah, I did. See, humility is not saying, no, 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 that, no. That's, that's not humility. Let me, let me explain what humility is. There, there's this guy who wants to connect with this lady that he really likes, but she won't talk to him. So he resorts to an old-fashioned way. He starts to send her letters by snail mail. One a day, he writes her a letter, handwritten letter. One a day. When he doesn't get a response after a while, he starts writing two and three letters a day and mailing them. He writes a total of 700 letters. And sure enough, she marries the postman. <laughs> now, here's humility. Humility is not being angry with the good fortune of the postman. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but having such high regard for other people that if I, de- if I need to step down a rung, I do so so that they can advance. Humility means I don't need to be first. In fact, I want you just to say that out loud with me. Let's make this a declaration that, that will help our unity here. I want you to declare and try to mean it as much as you can. I want you to say out loud with me, I don't need to be first. Ready? I don't need to be first. Now, if you're here with your spouse, turn to them and say, I don't need to be first. Go ahead. Yeah, like you meant that. Think what it would be like to have an entire community of pe- people who would help, would rather help other people advance in place of them. Think about what, because that's what the church is. And we can do that because when we do that, people go, oh, 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 that looks just like Jesus. The problem with community is that it is not uniformity, and I would rather have it uniformity because I want you to be just like me. I want you to think like me. I want you to do what I would like to be done. We like uniformity, but that's not what Paul said this is. In fact, later he'll say it's one body, and a body has many members. Not everybody is the eye. Not everybody is is a toe. It's just everything functions in a different way. See, the problem is that, that within a real community of faith, there is a great difference of cultures, of experiences, of preferences, of, of generational expectations. There is this, this really big difference. And, and, you know, I've been pastoring churches now for about 35 years. And I'm going to tell you that what everybody wants is just so different all the time. And, and so I get criticized. I get criticized for, uh, for the service being too short. And in that same service, I got criticized for the service being too long. I get criticized for not dressing up enough. I get, dress, I, get, I get criticized for overdressing. I get, I get criticized for having women serve communion. 
I get criticized for not giving women enough jobs in the church. I get, I get criticized for the, the worship being too long, or the worship being too short. Pastor, you should just let it go on and on and on. Pastor, you need to shut it down because we've got people here who are from Catholic backgrounds and they're just used to 30-minute masses and you're going to blow them away with all this stuff. And so you're telling me all this stuff. I've been, I've been criticized for using a pulpit. I've been criticized for not using a pulpit. I've been criticized for being too transparent. I've been criticized for being too unapproachable. So the bottom line is this. The only church that you will totally agree with is the one you attend all by yourself. Because that's it. And half the time, I don't agree with myself anyhow. Remember, Paul is telling this to Jews and Gentiles, or if you will, Jews and Arabs. You come together in unity. Find your common ground. He's saying to men who are not used to the culture Jesus is presenting, I want you to give women equality. He's saying to slave owners, I want you to submit and serve slaves. This is what I want you to do. And you can understand that that's going to create some incredible irritation. A little boy is sitting on the steps of his porch and his face is in his hands and he looks really sad. His dad comes home from work and he says to him, he says, son, what's wrong? And he said, well, dad, just between you and me, I'm having trouble getting along with your wife. (laughs) See, gentleness understands irritation. Look, we are going to irritate each other. We just do. I was with a friend this week and we were talking about ministries and he said, yeah, that that really bothered me, but it's not important. I'm over that. And I thought, geez, that's exactly it. We're going to irritate each other. I mean, just say it out loud. You irritate me. Ready? Don't look at people. Just say it out loud. (laughs) Now just say, I don't have to be first. (laughs) Exactly. See, gentleness is the quality of a strong personality who was nevertheless master of himself and servant of all. Gentleness refuses to be critical, to be rude, to be unrestrained. A lady once told John Wesley, my talent is to speak my mind. Wesley replied, woman, God wouldn't care a bit if you would just bury that talent. See, and I've been with people, I've been with men and women, and they'll say to me, hey, I just speak what, you know, it's just who I am. It's just, I just speak my mind. And I want to say, no, 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 no. Then change your mind because it's your choice. Gentleness does not do that. Gentleness means I don't need to be right. And I'm just, I'm just really tired of our culture when it comes to everybody has to have an opinion about everything. And you'll see that. You'll see newscasts. If you think this is, and then, and then email us and tell us what your opinion is. And you look in the paper and you see columns. There are a lot of things we don't need opinions about. But we're just trying to prove we're right. In the body of Christ, there are just certain things we don't need opinions about. So really, whether or not you like my soul patch, I don't care. Whether or not I wear jeans or dockers, I don't care. And I know some of you are brought up in in the sacredness of a gathering like this, and you see somebody walking with a hat on. I don't care. There are a whole lot bigger fish to fry. And the body of Christ needs to understand that. 
Thank you. I'll now Tebow. No. <laughs> Just think what it would look like in an entire community where there was nothing to prove but taking every opportunity to serve. Can we do that? Because people would say, oh, that's just like Jesus. Unity is not a microwave. It is a crock pot. It takes time. Patience means to be long-tempered. It is handling adversity without overreaction. A church will not be mature unless it gives itself time to understand our histories, to recognize the other person's weakness and find ways of strengthening that weakness with love. But see, we want everybody, and I want everybody to be better right now. I want you to live the life I think you should live now, and it's not going to happen. Well-adjusted parents will bring a child home from the hospital, given birth to. And they will already understand that that baby will poop its diaper. It's not a surprise. Ooh, what's that? You know what that is. You will expect the midnight cries of hunger. As they get older, you will expect the tantrums in the grocery store. But you also say, but I love her. You also have this hope of maturing because in your mind, you're thinking they will outgrow this. And besides that, you're just stuck with them. That's why when you you check into our nursery, we get your name and address and phone number. You're not leaving those kids here. They're yours. The church is the same way. There will be people around you that will just stink. You go, whew, I don't want to be around them. There will be people around you that will always say, feed me, 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 feed me. There will be those people who throw a tantrum. And we've got to look at those people because it's not you, it's those other people. And you've got to say, I love you. And I have this hope that as we spend time together and you hear Jesus' teachings, you will mature. And besides that, we are stuck with each other. We cannot just bail out on each other because we've been provoked or because it's uncomfortable. We had a family leave this church. And I don't say this to to degrade them, but I want to make a point. They left this church because they said that they felt that we as a church family did not have enough hunger for God's word and to put it in action. And they said, this community of faith over here has a much greater hunger, so they went there. They may be right. But patience says this. Whatever the weakness is, I'm here to help. Instead of... I think I'll leave you because you are of no help. Patience means I don't need to bail out. Think how it would look if an entire community 
was intent on growing up together no matter what it cost. Think how that would look. That there was no fear that you're going to take off on me, but we're going to work through this together. We can do that, and the community will go, ooh, that looks like Jesus. So who in this community of faith bugs you? Don't, don't point, but just think about it. Now see, see what Paul says. See, see if, 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 if Pastor Jason, stand up. If, 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 by the way, say happy anniversary to these two. It's their anniversary today. <laughs> How many years? Seven? Sarah, way to go. So if if Jason bugs me, the normal thing for me to do in a community of faith is ignore him or avoid him. Pastor Don says that's what he does. (laughs) Paul says this, what I want you to do is I want you to go straight toward him and I want you to bear up with him. Simply means this, and I'm going to come to him and I'm going to win him over by my serving him. I'm going to come to him and understand his journey and do what I can to resource, thanks Pastor Jason, to resource his journey. How do I do that? Well, first of all, understand the way you don't do that because the opposite of bearing up means for me to put down, to, to, to talk against, to ignore, to tell off, but understand what, love, what, what bearing in love means. Love means that I absorb all the bad, and bearing means that I supply all the good. How do I do that? You start praying for that person's success, and then you find ways of helping them become successful, to make it happen. Because bearing means I don't need to spotlight your faults. Now I'll just be plain as I can. Some of you are gossips in this room. And I've defined gossip. Gossip is when you're neither the problem or the solution and you talk about it. And what you do is you spotlight other people's faults for whatever reason you do that. Stop it and it doesn't even count if it's in a prayer request. Oh, let's pray for Pastor Jason and Sarah. They have a horrible marriage. No, no, no. We don't spotlight each other's faults. Think how it would look if you have an entire community energized in healing weaknesses and never pointing out those weaknesses to others. Can we do that? You bet we can. And people will go, oh, that looks like Jesus. So here is God's expectation. Here's what he says of his church, and I'm going to skip a couple of verses there where he talks about unity because he, he, he goes through with these, these seven ones, one body, one God, and so on, just meaning that God has always used this principle of unity. God's expectation of his church is this, Ephesians 4.3. Make what? Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Take note that it is the Holy Spirit that brings us the bond of peace, the unity. The bond of peace means there's peace, and the bond means the ligament, the thing that joins two members together. The Spirit of God has already done that. We don't have to create the unity. It's here. He said, I want you to keep it, and I want you to make every effort. And that word every effort is really hard to give one word in English to represent it. So here's some of the words that are used to describe it. 
urgency, haste, passion, full effort involving the will, the reason, the physical strength, and the total attitude. It is a full court press. I will do everything in my energy to keep us in unity. That's what it means. Everything. Because it is so vitally essential to the foundation of the church. It's guarding every thought. It is controlling every word. It's disciplining every action so it leads to unity and never to discord. Because unity is God's idea. It is his priority. It is what we've got to live by. Unity is the vehicle that the church rides to fulfill its mission of revealing Jesus. And that is our goal for 2012, to become more unified than ever before. Every year before the big football game between arch rivals, University of Texas and Texas A&M, Texas A&M has this pep rally with a really huge bonfire. I think we have a picture of it there. Several years ago, the bonfire, as they were constructing it, collapsed. And it killed 12 students and injured 27. As a sign of their support and their shared grief, a number of University of Texas students attended the memorial service. And here's how Eric Opelia student body vice president of the University of Texas, described that service. He wrote, I had the great privilege of attending the memorial service at A&M tonight and was deeply moved by the events I experienced. The A&M student body is truly one of the greatest treasures of our state. As part of the UT delegation, we sat on the floor of Reed Arena and immediately following the end of the service, I heard this rustling sound behind me. I looked over my shoulder and saw the sight of 20,000 students spontaneously putting their arms around their neighbor's shoulders and forming a great circle around the arena. The mass stood there in pin-drop silence for close to five minutes. Then from somewhere, someone began to quietly hum. Mm sing, that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I am found, Twas blind, but now I see. Within seconds, the whole arena was singing. He said, I tried, but I choked. I cried. This event brought me to tears. It was one of the most defining moments of my college career. And I learned something tonight. For all us Longhorns who discount A&M and our never-ending rivalry, we need to realize one thing. Aggie Land is a special place with special people. Why? It is a family. It is a family that cares for its own, a family that reaches out, a family that is unified in the face of adversity. And shouldn't it be there? Don't you think? Shouldn't it be there? that God's amazing grace should be found when the family is unified. So for 2012, I'm asking you this. Could we stand in unity in spite of our differences, our preferences, our generational expectations? And will you join with me inviting all others to be with us in this journey? Because I'll tell you this, if we're like that, they will come. And they will stay because they will look at this community and say, That looks just like Jesus. Will you stand?
So I want you to repeat those four phrases with me as our closing time. First of all, I want you to say with me, I don't need to be first. I don't need to be right. I don't need to bail out. And I don't need to spotlight your faults. Now may you, under the direction of God and his Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus, walk from this point on with all four of those deep in your heart. May you find great freedom in not having to prove you're right and not having to prove you're first. May you find great joy in not looking at others' weaknesses and spotting them. And will you understand the patience God has had with you and in that same play, same way replicated in your life? In doing so, may we discover what it is to touch a world and that they would find Jesus by looking at our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.